Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, listeners. This is NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. Today is December 13th, and tonight we're talking with Mike Rose. I'm your host, Tanya Baker, at the NWP in Berkeley, California. Mike Rose, a professor at the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies, is the author of many books, including Why School, Lives on the Boundary, The Mind at Work, and Possible Lives. Today he will talk with us about his newest work in his book, Back to School, Why Everyone Deserves a Second Chance at Education, An Argument for Democratizing Knowledge in America. As always, if you are listening to us at airtime, we invite you to join us in the chat room where we'll be posting links to materials related to tonight's program. Thank you all for joining us tonight. And Mike, thank you for taking time to talk with me today. It's nice to get a chance to talk with you again. Thank and you, I'm especially excited about this book, which seems like a just right book at the just right time. Well, thanks. Thank you. So, Mike, in an overview, your book is really, in fact, an argument that everyone should have the opportunity to continue their education, to go to college. So can you talk a little bit about this position and maybe ground it in this time and this place? Well, what I, what I believe is that everybody should have the opportunity um, to go to college or some kind of education beyond their formal education ending with high school. And in some cases, people don't complete high school, so they should be able to have the opportunity to go back complete that, get it through a GED or high school equivalency, and then further education if that's what they want. So I guess I want to start by being clear about what I mean about this opportunity to go back to school. That is that we need to have in the society some kind of mechanism for people to continue their education. The traditional way we've done that is through college. People go on to college. Uh, they can go to community college. They can get an occupational credential of some kind. They can get an associate's degree, some transfer and go to a four-year college. Many have traditionally gone straight to a four-year college. Uh, others go into some kind of specialized occupational training. This opportunity to have something to go to to further your education, I think, is just part of who we are. And it's actually a tradition that goes very far back in American society. We always seem to be looking for ways to go beyond um, whatever, the, whatever the baseline of education is at the time. Americans have generated ways, whether they were um, mechanics institutes or through labor unions and farm organizations or correspondence schools or university extension. It just seems like there's all these ways that we have generated for ourselves to continue our education. And I think that in a, in a society like ours, an open society, a democratic society, and a society built on the kind of economy we have, we just need to have these options open. Um, now, what's this mean practically? Well, as so many people have been talking about these days, it means, and you know the phrases, you've heard them as well, making people college and career ready or um, having some kind of opportunity to go to either college or some sort of occupational education beyond. 
this has tremendous implications, of course, for K through 12 education, right? We all know that. Right. But I guess today we're going to focus on what happens after K through 12. So again, to repeat, I'm what I'm advocating for is this opportunity to have some kind of further time where you learn more, where you encounter new ideas, where you improve your skills, where you meet new people. And that can be in a traditional college setting. It can also be in um, some kind of program that's preparing you for an, an occupation of some kind, a certificate program, whatnot. And I think you also lay out some things about this period in time, particularly about the economy, about um, the number of people serving and coming home from the military that make this opportunity for next steps important to right. maybe more people or different groups of people. That's right. So so we live at a time where for multiple reasons um, there are just many, many, many more people who are considering some kind of post-secondary education. And we can tick the reasons off. Um, first of all, a generation or two ago, there were a lot of jobs available for people coming out of high school or for for that fact with my uncles who did not complete high school. Right. Union jobs in industry where people could, you know, work themselves toward a solid middle class life. As we know, many, many of those jobs are no longer around. So one thing is some of the kinds of, of uh, employment opportunities that used to be present are not present. So that's increasing the number of people who are looking for something post-secondary. Um, we also have been successful in the country over the last couple of decades in promoting a kind of college-for-all ideology. I mean, this notion that college is potentially available or an option for everyone is a pretty new idea in the country. And if you think about it, that was quite a cultural shift that a lot of different forces came together to achieve this notion, this, this shift in a lot of folks who, again, a generation or two ago wouldn't have considered college as an option, now at least consider it. So you've got the changing employment situation. You've got this rise of the college for all ideology. You've got increasing number of folks. We've got increasing immigration. We've also got increasing number of um, people who are just moving into um, into cities, into locations where college becomes maybe more available geographically. So there's this series of forces that have come together that have are leading more and more people to the doors of our colleges and community colleges. Um, you mentioned veterans. There are something like 600,000 veterans in college right now, many in community colleges. Mm -hmm. So you've got these, these folks returning from the conflicts in Iraq or Afghanistan, and many of them are wanting to try and improve their lot. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got all these different reasons, right? why more and more folks are seeking some kind of post-secondary education. Now, here is the rub in all this, Tanya, and that is that this is all happening at a time when budgets are being crushed, okay. crunched. I'm sorry, when budgets are being crunched, when, when uh, resources are being withheld, when 
many, many colleges are cutting classes, cutting services. Um, in California alone, over the last several years, something like 450,000 students have not been able to enroll uh, as they wanted to in the community college system. That's astounding. That's so, astounding. so at this time of unprecedented demand, at a time when everybody from the president on down is saying we need to get more folks into post-secondary education, the doors are being either shut or only kept partway open. Right. Ugh. Okay, Mike. <laughs> That's a bleak way for us to start. But we're gonna we're gonna move in a better direction, let's, I'm sure, right? But shall we? All right. Um, I'm, I'm in your hands. So why don't we talk about um, the sort of uh, I think opening up or broadening of the conversation that you call for in this book about what happens people who do get in, who do have experiences in community college. I think um, we live in a time, I mean, you use the phrase college and career ready, and that's, um, we talk a lot about the economic value and the career readiness value, but I think you push us to have a broader understanding of the sort of range of benefits, both to individuals and to our society, of people having these opportunities. Right. So... You know, it's interesting, over the last couple of decades, um, and it's and what I'm going to say is understandable given the fact that, that the economy has been shifting so dramatically and the United States over the last two or three decades is no longer the, the only um, economic powerhouse in the world, right? So given all these reasons, it's understandable that Virtually the only justification we hear for going to school is an economic one. I mean, again, from the president on down, the, the justification for staying in school, for more school, for getting some kind of post-secondary credential or degree, the justification is almost always given as an economic one. And that's true. I mean, let, let's, you know, mass education in the United States has always had as a primary purpose economic advancement and climbing the social ladder. And as, you know, as, as I've said this before, as a child of the working class who, uh, whose current life has been made possible by education, I completely understand that and sympathize with that motive. But there are so many other reasons that people go to school. And what's interesting to me, Tanya, is that those reasons emerge from the mouths of the people themselves. So, for example, in one of the chapters in Back to School, where I, I, uh, I'm spending time in this classroom, um, it's part of a program for folks who have pretty poor basic skills. Many of them didn't graduate from high school. They're coming into this community college program to learn a skilled trade and also to build some basic skills. So it's a combination program where they, they learn a trade and also build basic mathematics and literacy skills. What's so interesting to me, when these folks talk about what brings them back to school, again, the economic motive looms large, right? Mm -hmm. I want to be able to support my kids. I don't want to work, as one guy said, I don't want to work a crappy job the rest of my life. Um, so that's clearly a driving motive. But as they talk, 
And as they write, all these other reasons come up. And these are reasons that you could find in these classical treatises about um, the purpose of a liberal education. So people say, I'm coming back to, you know, I want to come back to school because I want to learn new things. I want to learn how to read and write and speak. Um, I want to be a role model for my kids. Uh, um, I want to, and it gets this profound, they'll say things like, I want to turn my life around. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be able to... Um, I want to be able to have this, this. I'm saying this in my words here, but in somewhere or another, they'll say they want to have a positive experience about school. They want right. school and education to be a, a positive thing in their lives. So as as they start to talk, you get more and more of these reasons that have to do with becoming more literate and numerate, with being able to speak better, with learning new things, um, with being a role model for the kids, being able to participate in society turning the meaning of school around, changing their lives. These are all very powerful reasons that emerge out of um, and go beyond just the economic. So the people themselves give these reasons. Now, in terms of you asked what's what's the benefit for society, so we've got tons and tons of studies that demonstrate that as people get more education, there are these other kinds of benefits that come along with that, um, in addition to, the, to whatever economic advancement comes with it, they tend to be more. Um, they tend to be healthier, have more health literacy, under, better understanding of health issues, and they have, and their own health improves. They get more involved in their kids' education, so there's a kind of secondary effect on the mm-hmm. education of their children. Um, they tend to be more involved in civic affairs and politics. They vote more. Um, so there's this range of other benefits to society in addition to the fact that they're going to improve their economic lot, which means they pay more taxes, which means they draw less on social services. Right. Which, right? So whatever investment society has to make in the short term to keep those doors of the college open to provide the services they need, tutoring and whatnot, um, to provide the social safety net that enables them to go to school in the first place. The evidence shows that in the long term, all of that gets paid back and more uh, to society. So in terms of a return on taxpayers' investment, right, the return is there. So the economic argument still holds, but there's this whole... Unpacking of all of these things. Yeah, so so there's economic, yeah, there's economic payoff for the person, there's economic payoff for society, and then there's all these extra economic payoffs, right. both for the person and for society. Um, I wonder if you could, um, in this, uh, in the book, you kind of lay out this argument, and then you do two things that I found really informative and helpful. One was to introduce us to some people mm-hmm. who sort of uh, illustrated some mm-hmm. of these ideas. And another is to introduce us to programs or places on campuses mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. you could see beyond the sort of job training or um, or the, the content that they were learning, the way students were getting a sort of set of these right. other benefits. Right. And I wonder if you could um, maybe tell us a story or unpack. Sure, sure. There's so many. 
so many stories. And and yeah. see, just like we said, this is this is taking a positive turn. <laughs> right? I knew it would. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Um there's so many ways to answer your question. Uh let, let me start sort of at the broad level and just say that um, you know, look, overall, when you look at just the overall statistics, we don't do anywhere near the job we need to do in terms of not only getting folks in the door to two- and four-year colleges, but keeping them there. Um, the the uh, completion rate, I think, at the community college level is something like 30%, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the, at the four-year college level, I'm thinking it's somewhere between 50 and 60%. So clearly, we have much more work to do. But what's interesting is that when you can find colleges, community colleges, four-year schools, who work with similar populations who have a who have a better record than other places. Right. So clearly what happens at the institutional level matters. Yeah. It matters. And what was what has been interesting to me is that this positive record can be at the institutional level, but it also can be or occur within individual departments or mm-hmm. units within campuses. So even if a campus overall maybe is not doing all it can do, you'll find this tutoring center, let's say, right. or a particular occupational program or some kind of special program like a first-year experience program or a learning community mm-hmm. where these remarkable things are happening. So Again, it depends on the campus, the place, as as to where these really wonderful things might happen. Right. But let me take you, for example, uh, into a tutoring center of one of the colleges. I was hoping I would go there. I visited. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. So this is an in, this is an interesting place. This is quite a poor school. Serves I mean, serves quite a poor population of the city. And this tutoring center, so it's, you know, there's a lot of different ways tutoring centers can be set up. This one is set up as a kind of peer tutoring operation so that students at the community college who have done well uh, come back and go through some training and can become peer tutors. Now, also what what they've got is some of these folks will then go on to transfer to a four-year school, and some of those then will go on to graduate work. And a few of those folks are still employed. They come, you know, they say in some cases they're maybe running the center or they're some of the supervisors. In other cases, they're just regular tutors. But so you've got this mix of peer tutors and then people who have graduated from the college but who have come back. And it's such an interesting place to me. Um, you know, you walk in and it's, it's a nondescript-looking place, you know, a couple of old kind of battered couches, mismatched chairs around the room, um, not a particularly big place. There's some computers, computer consoles around. But you know, once you've been in there about five or ten minutes, that this is a healthy place. Um Everybody's working. There's a buzz in the place. You know, tutors are are busy. Students are coming in constantly. You, as you walk around, you just listen in. You can hear folks encouraging and giving direction. And 
people are there to get help with everything from, you know, a basic skills course to working on a paper for psychology to doing some assignment related to an occupational course. So there's a lot of activity, a lot of activity, a lot of engagement, a lot of a, just this sense. You know, you know when you walk into a place like that, this sense that healthy, good things are going on here. So I spent a lot of time there, and I got to meet some of the tutors as well as some of the students. And I'll give you one example, um, one example of many. A guy that I ran into there was getting tutoring. <clears throat> He's in a wheelchair. Uh, big guy, um, mid-20s, I would say. And everybody knew him. And uh, so he was getting some assistance with preparing his uh, personal statement to apply to four-year school. So he was getting ready to transfer. So here's his story. This is a guy who, you know, like with so many young people, um, just kind of got off track in high school, got into trouble, um, ended up running the streets, and was paralyzed in a, uh, by a gunshot from somebody from a rival gang that, from the one he was in. And he went through, you could imagine, all the kinds of both personal and physical hell that you go through when you realize that you're going to be paralyzed for the rest of your life from the waist down. And he tells the story of finally being at home in his parents' house. This is a year or so after the injury. He's gone through rehab, but he's still just at a loss as to what to do with his life. Mm. And he's just kind of surfing the web and stumbles across this college, which it turns out is relatively close to where he lives. Mm -hmm. And the way he describes it is that just something happened. He knew he had to go there. So he got his hands on whatever papers he could find, and the next day was on a commuter train headed down to this college. So he signs up for an occupational program. And somewhere along the line, gets a little job, like a little work-study job, as a receptionist in this tutoring center. So he's the guy you meet when you walk in the right. door and he signs you in, right. right? So he describes that, you know, and he's there and he likes that and he's continuing his occupational program. And he says, the way he describes it, he says, you know, I sat there day after day and all these people kept coming in. They kept coming in to, to get help with their papers and there were all these tutors, and he said, and these tutors were helping them. And he said, it really hit me. He said, I, I realized, gosh, he said, I don't want to just take these occupational courses. I want to take English. I want to take math. I want to learn other things. And he said that's what started him on the road then toward taking the general ed courses that, that he would need to get an associate's degree in transfer. And so here he was two years later in that tutoring center working with somebody, writing, helping, uh, helping him to write the personal statement for his applications to the University of California and then to the state college system within California. So these are the kinds of stories that you see again and again and again that unfortunately don't make it into the newspapers as much as the awful statistics, the admittedly awful statistics about you know, drop out and lack of retention. Because there are many, many stories like his. Um, people who find their way 
in these institutions um, because of a teacher, because of a particular program, um, in this case because of this little tutoring center that seems like just uh, such a healthy place. That's a great story. Um, it, I'm, I'm struggling because I want to talk more about the tutor center because I love it. I love everything you wrote about the tutoring center, and it just feels so rich to me. But um, the other thing that his story makes me think about is a is a sort of um, an argument that you make in the book about what we miss when we focus on um, sort of individual responsibility or pull yourself up by your bootstraps or if you've failed, maybe you don't deserve a second chance. And one of the ways that you talk about that in the book is the availability of sort of networks that teach you about college or about opportunity or about what to do next. And it seems to me, in a sense, that... Uh, that was not a network that this young man had when he arrived at the community college, and sort of by happenstance, mm-hmm. it, these things become visible to him by his placement mm-hmm. near mm-hmm. these other people in the tutoring center that mm-hmm. show him some new way of thinking about himself, about what's available, about the work. That's a really that's a nice observation. Um, you know, from my own life, I know how incredibly valuable a particular teacher was for me and then further teachers along the way in college. Um, these kinds of supports are just essential. They're absolutely essential. Sometimes the supports appear in the form of particular people, you know, a certain teacher, a counselor, a minister, a coach, whatnot. And sometimes the supports are these small little places like this tutoring center. Um, And then, of course, there are all the broader kinds of support that are provided by institutions, by government, whatnot, from financial aid to you know, various kinds of assistance for people who are behind the eight ball. It's just, it it, it stuns me when I hear, because we live at a time now when we hear it a lot, that success is determined by individual effort alone Mm -hmm. and that it's individual grit or moxie and strength and determination alone that determines your your success. And when that gets converted into a political argument, it becomes an argument for stripping away some of the funding for these various other kinds of supports and resources and whatnot. Um, all the students I write about have a tremendous dose of self-determination, have a huge dose of grit and motivation. Mm -hmm. They absolutely have it, but it has to to somehow be channeled and directed. You know, you can have all the determination in the world, but if there's nobody there to show you, to help you how to add a column of numbers, Right. right? And so these places, either these individual people 
or these programs and places become hugely important because, as you suggest in your question, what they do is, number one, they structure or guide uh, motivation and desire. These are the courses you take next. This is where you go to get help with this kind of thing. If you run into trouble with such and such, this is what you do. Even just this is how you ask for help, Mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of these students have not grown up in schools or in environments where they learn all the stuff that really successful um, students coming out of more affluent families and more affluent neighborhoods and more resourced schools, they learn that stuff from day one. They learn it through the environment. A lot of these folks haven't had those opportunities. So these people or these places at this point in their lives provide it. They provide structure. They provide guidance. They provide the tricks of the trade. They provide just that kind of knowledge about this is what you do, this is what you do next. If you want to apply for a four-year school, this is what you need to do. So there's all that kind of knowledge. But in addition, there's just the human support because... Again, imagine, let's go back to our example of the young man in the wheelchair. Imagine the dark nights of the soul that this young man must have had along the way. Do I belong here? Just navigating around the campus in a wheelchair, right? Do I belong here? Is this the place for me? I really want to be here, but oh my gosh, I'm not doing well in this class, or oh my gosh, I can't read very well, or oh my gosh, I've got trouble with What's interesting is, you know, he started out in the lower-level remedial courses. That's where he was placed. Mm. And, again, he made his way up that ladder of those courses. Now, there were a lot of people along the way in that tutoring center, his teachers, who enabled that kind of progress. Right. So desire, motivation, hugely important. No denying it. Individual responsibility, absolutely Hugely important, no denying it. But without all these other kinds of support and people and these human networks, and just a place like that tutoring center where when he wheels in there, he feels like I've got a place where I belong. Right. Those are huge for people who haven't had um, a lot of the good fortune early in their lives. Right. Mm-hmm. So... Um, <laughs> I guess that's how we're going to do this. We're going to go up and down. So, up, so, and down up and down is good. So um, his story, his uh, his beginning in remediation brings us to a question that is often related to access to college and who gets to go or access to opportunities and who gets to partake of that, and that is preparation. So we could talk about what this means for K-12 schools, but that's probably another whole hour of, hmm. uh, at least, of talk. But we know we're, we again, we can come back to that conversation about what does it mean to be college and career ready. And um, But the related question is, what happens to young people or any people who find themselves ready to take a next step, you know, motivated, have desire, uh, have self-governance and and um, mo- and can get themselves there, but they don't have college and career-ready skills, let's say. Um, I think that you push us to think a little bit. I mean, 
people want to talk a lot about remediation. They want to talk about whether we should have remediation, whether you have to meet a certain bar before you get to a place. Um, I think that in the book and in other places, you've asked us to think differently about remediation. Yeah. So, and and look, I've worked in I've in in, in previous lives, I've worked in a lot of programs. Um, teaching remedial writing, running tutoring centers, developing programs for students, uh, bridge programs, preparatory programs. So I I do not want to be in any way, I don't want to sound in any way blithe or dismissive about the concern. It's, it's huge. It's criminal that so many people... Um, uh, are after after years in the system come out with such poor education. I mean, we all know that. Everybody agrees to it, and, and we all know the multiple reasons why that can happen. So I, I'm, I'm not for a moment trying to be uh, lighthearted right. about this very serious issue. But a couple things. Number one, it's important to remember that in American higher education, we've had some kind of remedial function since before we had yell leaders and fight songs. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you go back to the mid-19th century, a huge number of colleges had preparatory programs, and these were in place to keep enrollments up because they were taking students in who weren't yet ready for the curriculum. And so this goes back in our history. Um, You can find quotations from college presidents like the president of Brown in 1841 uh, in a speech. um, Gosh, what was it? It's something to the effect of uh, about how many students are entering college wholly unacquainted with English grammar. So this is 1841. Um, we're recording this. Yes. So we're recording this this interview at Berkeley in the 1970s. Berkeley was holding something like 50 percent of its students, of its entering students, for its um, remedial English requirement. So I mean, we can go far back. We can go mid-century. This is not a new thing. Now, the numbers may be a bit higher now because of what we were talking about earlier. That is, there's many more people coming to some kind of college, coming to some kind of higher education, who would not have come before. So the numbers are increasing, and therefore you're from from a wider and wider swath of the population. So you're going to get more folks who, in some way or another, are underprepared. But the numbers may be increasing a bit, but this remediation phenomenon has been around for quite some time, and substantially so. Right. So that's one thing to remember. The second thing that I think is, and again, not being at all um, blithe about the seriousness of the problem, in a way you almost have to have a remediation function if you have an open educational system in a society that has a fairly high level of inequality. And we all know it's in the newspapers every day that, in in fact, economic inequality is growing in the United States. 
It's more dramatic than in just about any other industrialized country. So if you have a society where there are these separations between the haves and have-nots, where there is this kind of inequality, and the inequality that plays out in schools and neighborhoods, then you have to have, and if at the same time, you want to pride yourself on having an opportunity society, a society um, with an educational system that is open to all, you can't have those two things together with having, without having this remedial function. Right. Now, the big question is how do we do it how better? How do we do it better? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And maybe that takes us to our next topic. How do we do it better? But to think that somehow or another remediation can be done away with given those two other realities that I said is just a pipe dream. Arnie Duncan, our Secretary of Education last year or the year before, in his speech said he wants to get community colleges out, out of the remediation business. That is a historically naive thing to say, but it also suggests then that we would need to have a shift in our social structure unlike anything that we've seen. Right. I guess that's not what he meant. That's probably not what he meant. Too bad. <laughs> so, Mike, one or two words or one or two points that you would think about how we could do remediation better. Right. So, you know, a lot of folks, myself included, for, for many years have been critical of the way um, remedial writing and, and with that reading and remedial mathematics uh, is, is taught. Um, and what's exciting right now, Tanya, is that there's a lot going on around the country um, that has some promise about improving instruction in remediation. I mean, there's like a, it seems like a critical mass of people, um, many of whom coming from the community colleges themselves, who are calling for a fundamental rethinking of the way we... I'm going to stick with remedial writing since that's what I know most about. That's great. With a fundamental rethinking of the way we do remedial uh, education, remedial writing. So you've got folks who are calling for a completely different kind of curriculum, one that moves us away from a kind of skills and drills focus that... that has dominated so much remedial education for this century, for, I mean, for most of the 20th century. Um, so you're, you're getting folks, and I would include myself here, who call for a much richer curriculum that tries to engage people um, in speaking and writing and reading um, uh, and provides additional support to enable them to be successful at doing this, uh, this new kind of work. There's other folks who are creating programs where the remedial writing course is blended in with some other kind of content course. This was something we were doing as well um, decades ago, and that's certainly catching on now. So that, let's say a student takes an introductory political science course, an introductory psychology course, and there's a writing course that's attached to that course. So the writing has a kind of purpose and meaning provided by the the, the, the um, disciplinary course. Um, that is also happening in occupational 
programs where a math course is integrated in with welding, let's say, or culinary or nursing or whatnot. Um, people, a word that you hear a lot these days is acceleration. Uh, one of the things that we know from research as well as just practical experience is that, you know, in a lot of colleges, there's like a le- there's like three, even four levels of remedial courses that people have to take before they get to the transfer level right. course. And what we know, and it just makes a lot of sense, is that each one of those steps in the ladder becomes a place where people can fall out of the system. There's just so many courses to take. With no credit. With no credit. But with cost. But with cost. All of this drains time. Um, And so people are looking at ways to try to collapse some of those courses, to make courses more intense but fewer in number. So there's a lot of different ways that people are trying to shift and change the standard remedial model. Certainly, a big piece of any of this change is going to be technology. So this is going on, I think, with more success right now in mathematics, given the nature of mathematics, but and the teaching of mathematics. But so what you have is um, people trying to figure out various ways to integrate computer instruction online instruction into these courses or in some cases having them substitute for the course or some part of the course, pinpointing particular kinds of problems that a student might have um, in mathematics or in writing. Then you send them off to certain modules. The modules, if they're done well, are very interactive so that, you know, they'll pose if a student gets something wrong, they'll pose another kind of problem that's similar. If the student gets that right, then they move from that to another. So there's a lot. So there's a lot of this going on. Well, let me say one last word about the advent of this technology into remediation. Um, clearly, it's here, and clearly, it's got a lot of momentum behind it. Um, foundations like. Gates, uh, for obvious reasons, are supporting research and various programs to try and see what can be done with um, the use of the computer and remedial instruction. Um, Certainly administrators are excited about it because it's cost-saving. So there's those kinds of of economic reasons for considering, um, considering the computer. But also, you know, again, there are legitimate instructional uses. My worry is that I think I think we are at this crossroads, and I talk about this a bit in Back to School. We're at this crossroads, and I could see us going in one of several directions. One direction would be a kind of thoughtful integration of computer-assisted instruction into the remedial project, into the remedial programs. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be carefully thought through, integrated into a whole robust curriculum and would be studied. Keep an eye on it. The other road would be that we get a lot of programs of computer, uh, um, electronic, electronic instructional programs. We get a lot of them. Some of them are good. Some of them are mediocre. Some of them are awful. And these began to take the place 
of instruction, of tutoring. Of, and sadly, that is a direction that we could easily go in because of the demand, because of the economic payoff, um, and that would be, I think, that would be exactly the wrong way to go with technology, and it would prove in the end to be fruitless, I think. Mm -hmm. So we're at a crossroads. I mean, I think at a legitimate crossroads. Um, we have examples of both kinds of things going, going on, right? Both kinds of things going on right mm -hmm. now. Uh, where we go is going to depend on political will, um, the strength of the voices I was talking about earlier who are advocating for these interesting changes in remedial instruction. You know, we'll see. So... Um, can I just ask you one more sure. question? Sure. Uh, it seems to me that um, that sort of in in its in its potentially worse um, iteration, yeah. computer assisted instruction um, <laughs> looks much like uh, some of some of the worst remediation instruction handled by human beings as well, right? I mean, so. You talked about lots of uh, counterexamples that are forces for good in remediation, um, but it seems to me that uh, there is a frame um, around a lot of people's thinking about remediation, and it and it can get it can happen with people being teachers. It can also happen with the way we structure computer assisted instruction, which is if you can't get the building blocks, then you don't get to. If you can't, you know, know the building blocks, then you don't get to build a building. If you can't know what adjectives are, then you don't get to write sentences kind of thing. Um, and I think lots of your examples in the book of uh, the strength of, of powerful remediation um, come at this, uh, what they provide is uh, both, skills and instruction, but a sense of a growing identity by the learner of capacity or... So, so you're, you're, you're getting to me, to, to, to my mind here, you're getting to the core of the issue. One of the things I try and do is go back and look at the history of remedial instruction in our time and where it comes from and how we ended up with the kind of model that we have, the traditional model, which tends to be this sort of skills and drills focus sort of one piece on top of the other piece on top of the other piece. You can't you can't um, try and write a paragraph if you can't put the verb and the subject together. You can't talk about ideas until you can, you know, do certain much more basic right. The change in remediation is going to happen only if we have a fundamental change in the way we understand what we mean by remediation. Mm -hmm. and a fundamental change in our understanding of people's capacity. Mm -hmm. um, if you go into a course or a program assuming that these are folks who are essentially illiterate, um, they have many, many, many deficiencies, there's all these things they can't do, right? That's going to lead you to create a certain kind of course. If, on the other hand, you go in and you think, you know, these are people who are think they think clearly. They've made their way through a big chunk of life. Um, 
they have certain desires and motivations, um, even though a particular reading may be difficult for them, there's ways I can make it accessible and we can begin to kick around the ideas and the more they understand the ideas, the more the reading might open up to them. Um, if I go in thinking, you know what, as poorly as they did on some placement test, these are clearly literate people. They they get to the campus. They lead their lives. They have a family. If you go in thinking that way, in this in this way that looks for capacity while admitting all the problems right. they may have, you're going to create a very different kind of course. So at heart, it calls for us to I think rethink the most basic assumptions we have about intelligence, about literacy, about human ability, about the inner lives of poor people, um, about the connection or, should I say, the very complicated connection between not being able to write well um, and thinking. The automatic assumption I've heard it 10,000 times is that if you can't write well, it means you can't think well. That's not necessarily the case. You can go watch somebody who can't write very well at all, who can problem solve their way through a mechanical problem like you can't believe. Um, so we've been talking up to now about changes in curriculum, about the use or lack of use of the computer and instruction, about the way we think about um, assignments. But at heart, Tanya, what we're talking about is a fundamental orientation toward learning, literacy, intelligence, and human ability. Human capacity, yeah. yeah. And actually, yeah, like whatever changes have to be undergirded by that big change event to me for us to move forward. We're talking about a fundamental shift in the way we think. Now, let me say something here. I don't want all of that... I don't want everything I'm saying to sound, let's see, I don't want it to come across sounding like some kind of arrogant dismissal of all the folks who, you know, day after day are teaching in two and three different colleges, trying to hold a life together on, you know, just barely making it. They walk into a classroom, they're handed a textbook, the, the, you know, or a workbook of some kind or a combination of workbooks and computer modules and whatnot. They're working hard. They're doing the best they can do. Many of them perform miracles with students right. because of all the extra things they do. What I'm trying to say is that the very kind of infrastructure that they work within exactly. is what we need to rethink um, because God knows they don't have the time to be able to sit back down and rethink all this because they're just, you know, they're headed to a parking lot to go off to the next place to try and make a buck, and they're doing the best they can do with the students they have. So the critique I have is is kind of a, the remedial culture, if you will, and the infrastructure and the institutional orientations. Those are where the big changes have to come. So that leads me to my last question or set of questions, really, Mike, which is how... Besides, I mean, I think this is actually one thing, right? Um, I, I, uh, relying on a workforce that's stressed and stretched in the way that we do uh, at the community college and particularly at the remediation course level is a problem. 
Um, you make other suggestions about the ways that we might change community colleges to to help um, organize for success of the students who are there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and also you make me realize I want to say something here that everything that I write about and suggest in Back to School is based on things that are already going on. Right. I, I would not for a moment want people to think that I'm in this book or here in this interview with you pontificating about what people should do in institutions um, based on what? Gosh, I don't know. My reading, my thinking, my own beliefs, my own experience, whatnot. I am trying the best I can to offer whatever I offer based on what I see going on right now. People are actually doing and making happen, both at the individual classroom level as well as at the institutional level. So I think that's an important thing to say. So given that, you asked me... Um, to talk a little bit about what could be done to improve student success. Which really the question then is, what examples have right. you seen right. that we could bring forward? So one way to answer this is to think of kind of various stages of a student's entrance into a community college or any any this this could hold true for Yale as much as it holds true for the community college down the street. So let's just say for any institution. One thing I think that we need to give serious thought to is the whole idea of the first encounter. What happens if that student walks off the street and into this institution? What signs are there? Are there signs? What's the signage like? And it doesn't have to be big, snazzy, brass signs, just signs to indicate where things are and to help people find where they need to, what they need to find. Um, the first folks they bump into, the groundskeepers, the security folks, the um, people at the front desk, um, how welcoming are they? How helpful? Excuse me, can you tell me where such and so is? You know, does the person give you that answer with a snarl or or in a friendly kind of way? Um, what about things like orientation programs or what happens on the first day of classes? So that's one way, I think, to think about um, this. How do we improve student success? At the level of the first encounter, what is that entrance like? What is that first day, first week like? Just a very quick example, I remember this one campus I was on, they were relocating the library. And some smart person in that library printed up little 8 by 10 signs on the computer and taped and stapled them all over the campus with arrows. Wherever, wherever we were on that little one block, it was a little one block square community college campus, um, there were arrows pointing toward the library. Just that simple act. Exactly. It, what that does is it moves us from the level of the institution to the level of the lived experience of the student. So, first encounters. 
another broad area of really important, really important concern is counseling. Um, you know, at some overtaxed community colleges, the, the ratio of student to counselor is something close to 1 to 2,000. I mean, that's remarkable. How possibly can things function this way? Right. So this is a resources question. I understand that. But even within the constraints of resources, are units, are units coordinated? Um, again, what happens at that front desk? Um, how well are the counselors trained? Um, one of the pieces of evidence we have is that often students take courses, but this is especially the case for students who don't have much experience with college in their families or in their own lives. They'll take courses that are out of sequence or that don't lead to their degree objectives, right? So the whole business of counseling and advising, again, starting with the front desk to coordinating counseling units to the possible use of electronic technology. Now, here's a place where electronic technology could be used in a really valuable way. One of the vice presidents I talked to at a college said, what if we set things up so that when a student drops a class and that clicks into some relay somewhere, a text message goes out to that student saying, ah, you dropped a so-and-so, why don't you drop into the counseling office? Oh, my gosh. Right? A brilliant idea. That is brilliant. That technology would enable. And since, you know, so, so, so again, how can you think about counseling within admittedly limited resources, how can you think about counseling that changes the kind of current model that we have that isn't necessarily all that effective? Um, and again, this is happening in places. Right. Right? People are rethinking what to do. We've been talking about remediation, which takes us to the huge topic of faculty development. Mm. And that is something that costs money. I realize that. But the whole business of professional development we were talking about it around remediation, but it, we could apply it in all kinds of to, to all kinds of courses in all kinds of ways. And how can you think about faculty development in a way that really does integrate the faculty into the faculty development? Right. Because so often what goes on is just awful. You know, they have some consultant come in from the outside, and there's a little song and dance, and it's the afternoon, and you get some cookies and some crummy cold cuts, and that you know, and everybody knows that this is foolishness. But some kind of really long-term integrated faculty development that involves the faculty in talking about their own disciplines and learning from each other and that sort of thing. Another vice chancellor, uh, vice president, I talked to said, you know, we don't create any opportunities on our campuses for faculty to come together to talk about teaching. If you think about it, it's true. Most faculty right. meetings have to do with, you know, administrative stuff exactly. or budgets or whatnot. So the whole area of teaching and faculty development. And then that takes us, I think, to the broad level of kind of thinking systemically. So you look at some colleges that, you know, have been getting lots of attention, the kinds that win these Aspen Awards and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And what they seem to be able to do and it takes a long time. So it takes a stable administration. It takes a president who's going to be there for a while. It takes mid-level managers, mid-level folks, deans, department heads who are committed. But if you can get a critical mass of those people who have a vision 
and they go through a long process of trying to, you know, bring players in, get people invested. You can begin to you begin to get these kinds of structural changes that make a difference in student success. So one example, I mean, a school that gets talked a lot about is Valencia in Florida. Well, they realized they looked at they they looked at um, the data on the remedial courses and pass fail rate and all that. And no big surprise, they found, like you'd find on so many campuses, that a lot of students had a whole lot of trouble with mathematics. So they began to ask themselves, what can we do to beef up instruction there, to provide more tutoring, maybe to structure requirements in a way so that more students need to take the courses at a certain time with this certain kind of assistance? Another thing that they wanted to do was to make sure that students had options. We were talking earlier about options. Um, college or career, well, would they be able to set things up so that students in an occupational program could also be taking some general education courses as they're doing that so that if they decided along the way, and this happens with some frequency, just like the young man in the wheelchair I was telling you about, where students in an occupational program decide, you know what, I think I want to get the associate's degree as well. So there are these kinds of large institutional changes that can also happen. But what's so interesting about a place like Valencia is that this is still a work in progress, and it's been it's been in the making for years. I mean, years of getting people to buy in, years of planning, years of involvement. It's not a quick fix. Right. Calls for an institutional vision and the political will to make it happen. Mike, we're very near the end of the hour. It is always a pleasure to spend an hour with you. Uh, but before we sign off, is there any last thing that we haven't had a chance to say or talk about or story you would tell or leave us with? Well, I think just to reiterate how fundamentally important it is to the United States both economically but also in terms of the way it sees itself, the kind of nation it wants to be, mm -hmm. just how fundamentally important it is to us that we not only keep open but enhance these options for folks to come back to school, to get another shot at it. When you sit on some of these campuses and you talk to folks who are coming in, people who sometimes haven't been in a classroom in 20 or more years, and you see the desire and the motivation, it's powerful. I mean, what that could do if a lot of people were, were enabled to continue their work, to continue to raise a family, to continue to hold a job, and to also somehow or another get some of this further education that they so desire, what a powerful effect that could have on us, not just economically, but socially as well. And so the question is, what are we willing to do as a society, institutionally, with whatever resources we can, to create conditions for more people to have the second chance? That's lovely. I would encourage everyone to get this book, Back to School. And we thank you so much, as always, Mike, for spending some time with the National Writing Project. Oh, thank you, Tanya. Thank you. And as always, with the National Writing Project, it's a pleasure. Well, thanks.